Tom, tell us a little about yourself. Yeah. Where are you from, family, and sure. where you've been? Yeah. Uh, and so on. Yeah, well, thanks for having me here this morning. Glad to be here. Um, I'm the guy with the accent in the room, and we'll talk about that in just a few minutes. Um, I am married. Unfortunately, my wife is not with me this morning because she broke her arm a couple mm. days ago, so she's laid up at home. So if I'm a little distracted this morning, it's because I've been doing all those things, taking care of her the last few days and spending time in the hospital and that sort of thing. Uh, we have one son who lives in Taiwan. Talk a little bit about that in my message this morning. Um, and before we moved here, we've been here about three and a half years now, and I teach at Melbourne School of Theology. And uh, before that, we were in the States, Los Angeles, where I was teaching at Bible University. And before that, we were in China for years as missionaries and serving there. So that's yeah. So you mentioned uh, a little bit about Melbourne School of Theology. For those yeah. of us who don't know where that is, what that is, um, maybe for those who are considering doing studies, why Melbourne School of Theology might be a way of being plugged in, and for those mm-hmm. who are not even interested in theological studies, why they might consider it. Yeah. You know, a lot of people come to Melbourne School of Theology for a variety of reasons. Uh, they come to prepare for ministry. They come to prepare for mission. But a lot of people simply want to go deeper in their Christian life. And so they come to study maybe for a year, uh, for two years or something, just to get deeper into the Word, to grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so there are a lot of reasons why people come and study uh, at MST. And so I would love to talk with you if you have any interest in that. Um, We do have a few MST people around here, Cameron and... uh, uh, and Signa, there you are back there. Uh, you should be sitting together, shouldn't you? <laughs> not not going to call anybody, and not going to call anything out. But um, anyway, um, yeah, a variety of reasons people come to to Bible College anymore, and we're not far from here. Just what, fifteen minutes yeah. or so away, and um, so it's it's a great place. We love it. Absolutely love it. Well, friend, uh, we're going to pray for you, Tom. It would be great to um, get into God's Word. Would you join with me in prayer, friends? Father, I want to thank you for Tom. I thank you firstly and foremostly that he's been called by you to be your son, adopted into the family, that you've empowered him through your Holy Spirit to um, proclaim your Word. Uh, And I pray right now that you would fill him, that empower him to proclaim the truths. Pray for us. Uh, quiet in our hearts and minds to hear what you're saying to us, not just individually, but as a whole community. And Lord, we do pray for Sue, uh, that you would comfort her in this challenging time with her broken heart, hand, that you would heal her and restore her and give her rest today. And we pray this all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks. Thank you, Shabu. Well, it is great to be with you this morning and a uh, great opportunity to open the word and to look together to see what God has for us. And uh, we are going to be talking about what it means to be God's missional people this morning, and probably going to come at it from a bit of a different direction than you normally would hear a message about, about what it means to be God's people and to be missional people. And uh, we'll think about that in some, some different kinds of ways, uh, I think. And I'm, I'm grateful these days, as we think about mission and, the, and, uh, and missional churches, we are talking about it in a lot of different ways than we used to. 
When I was much younger, we talked about missionaries going out cross-culturally, but now I think we have expanded that conversation to including a lot of other ways to think about being uh, God's people, God's missional people right here where we live. We're going to think about that for a little bit this morning. One observation that I have made about life over the years is that often very simple questions seem to be some of the most difficult questions to answer. When uh, Shabu asked me this morning, you know, where are you from and we're going to talk about that, and I said that's kind of funny because that's where I'm actually going to begin my message, is sometimes simple questions are difficult, aren't they? Not long ago, just a few weeks ago, my son and I had that experience. We were traveling together in South Africa. I was there for a couple of conferences, and it happened to coincide with my 60th birthday. And so my son and I kind of have this habit of doing things a little bit, um, I don't know, we just kind of, we love to have an adventure every now and again. And when we lived in China, we had plenty of adventures. But uh, I was thinking, you know, what do I want for my 60th birthday? Uh, My son lives in Taiwan where he teaches school. And I thought, well, why don't we go on a safari together for my 60th birthday? I'm in South Africa, so why don't you just come on down? We'll have a week's holiday together in between these two conferences. And so he did. He came down, joined me in South Africa. We went on safari, had a great time together. But there we were traveling around together, and people would often ask us, well, where are you from? Obviously, our accent is giving us away. And we would both just kind of start to laugh. And they'd say, well, what's so funny? My son would say, well, that's not an easy question to answer. Where are you from? He'd say, well, my dad lives in Australia, and I live in Taiwan, but we're from America, but we're here in South Africa together, and so where are you from is not an easy question to answer. For the past 20 years or so, that has been our experience as a family. Where are you from is sometimes a very challenging question for us. And especially for our son, who is your very typical third culture kid, having grown up in China, moved back to America for a little while, now lives in Taiwan. Where are you from? Somebody asked me that question recently and said, asked me where I was from, and I said, Ringwood East. And they said, they were not amused, and they, they rephrased the question and said, well, where's your accent from? My accent is from Los Angeles, where I was born and raised. Over the years, I have observed individuals and churches going through similar kinds of challenging questions Maybe the question, where are you from, isn't too, ti- too difficult. But what about these questions? First, who are we? Who am I? Obviously, it's a question of identity. It's one of the most basic questions that every single person asks himself or herself. And it often takes an entire lifetime to answer that question, who am I? What are we about as, as, a, as, a, as a church? Who are we as God's people? 
what is our unique identity as God defines us, not as the world would define us. Because sadly, those two identities are often very different from each other, aren't they? Even, even competing with each other. And it leads to what I have often observed among people is that I think most of us, many people live in a perpetual state of identity crisis, trying to figure out really, who am I? Too often, I find in the church, we float between a couple of identities. We have one identity on a Sunday morning when we are sitting here together as a community, but we leave this place and we go out into the world which is a strange way of thinking of things, as though this isn't the world, but it is. And all of a sudden, on Monday morning, we put on a different identity. And then maybe Wednesday night, when we're with a different group of people, we have a different identity. And we kind of float between these different identities, leading to what I say is a perpetual state of identity crisis because I don't know who I really am and I'm trying to understand and figure that out. The second question that I I sometimes ask and see people trying to figure out is this question, what are we here for? It's a question of purpose. It's, it's closely related to the question, what is life all about? What is, what is the point of life? What is the point of living? It is, it is much more than the more superficial forms of that question. What makes me happy? What am I passionate about? What, what fulfills me as a person? No, I think it, a question like, what are we here for, takes us back to original creation. Why Why did God make us, and why did he give us particular and unique, a a particular and unique place in all of creation? It's good to reflect on what it means to be human and, and what our role in creation is. But then beyond that, what does it mean to be a redeemed human? What does it mean to be a person in relationship with God through Jesus Christ? Because that changes our purpose in life, doesn't it? I think these are not only foundational questions for us as individuals, but it is foundational and it is very important for us as a church, for you as a congregation, to think about and reflect on who are we And what are we all about? I want to suggest that these are the questions at the very core of what I want to talk about this morning. What does it mean to be a missional person? What does it mean to be a missional community? Yes, it's great to pray for and send out missionaries, but there's more to being missionaries, more to being missional than just that. Every one of us is called into this life of being missional. What does that mean to be a missional church? There's a lot of talk these days about being missional and engaging in mission. And in many ways, I find the conversations helpful because they open the discussion much wider, much broader, as I said earlier, to, 
than they, than they previously have been in previous generations. But so often when we talk about being a missional church, we will limit ourselves to thinking about writing mission statements and vision statements and evangelistic activities and programs. Sending missionaries and cross-cultural and that sort of thing. But it's more than that. Every single one of us is invited to join God and engage in his mission in this world. These thoughts, these questions take us this morning. There are lots of passages in scripture we could look at. But we're going to look this morning at 1 Peter chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, turn with me here. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to focus on verses 9 through 12, but let me begin the reading at verse 4 to give us a little bit of context here. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people, you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. If you know anything about the letters of Peter, First and Second Peter, you know that they were written to people who were facing extremely difficult persecution. They understood the cost of discipleship in, a, in an extremely hostile world. Opposition and persecution were common in this day. In other words, we might say it is not a whole lot different to what many of our brothers and sisters around the world 
face even today. Maybe even some of you in in this room understand what it means to live out the Christian life in the face of adversity, in the face of difficulty, in the face of opposition. In a time when the church is becoming more and more marginalized, as we find ourselves moving further and further out on the fringes of society, and I have, I have ministered in many of those kinds of places around the world in my lifetime. God has often taken my wife and me to places where the church lives underground or where there is great difficulty in proclaiming the name of Jesus. These are people who would not merely survive such difficult circumstances, but they would be, as as we would say today, God's missional people in the midst of such darkness, in the midst of persecution, in, in a place where it could even mean the loss of your life, the loss of your livelihood. One of the things that I have observed over my years of ministry, especially in places where there are restrictions on on living out and exercising my faith, religion may be regulated, religion may be marginalized, but faith cannot. You cannot regulate a person's faith. You can regulate the activities of their religion, but you cannot put any laws on what happens in a person's heart. You cannot regulate their faith. You cannot hinder in any way a person's belief, though you may restrict their activities. Peter is writing to people who are facing this kind of difficulty in their life. But notice something else about this passage that is very interesting and really gets my attention. We see a number of phrases that Peter uses that are, that are not unique in Scripture. They are not unique in the New Testament. They actually take us back into the Old Testament, and this is what Peter is trying to help us to see is that how our faith is connected to the faith of the Old Testament. He roots our understanding of what it means to be a missional person, not only in the context of persecution, but in our historical Old Testament faith. We find many of these phrases in another key passage, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19, here we have Moses at Mount Sinai. And he says, God is speaking to Moses and he says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be, listen to this, my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And these are the words that you will speak to my people Israel. You will be my treasured possession among all peoples. You will be a kingdom of priests. You will be a holy nation. 
So why is this so important for us to think about? Why is Peter taking us back into this? Because because Peter is drawing a clear reference to one of the most defining acts of God in history. Not only to demonstrate his, his power, but to, to form his people as a nation and to give them a sense of identity. This is who you are. This, this exodus from Egypt demonstrated God's power to redeem his people. That he has the ability to actually do something on behalf of his people and act in a dramatic way that demonstrates his power and it also gives a sense of identity and purpose to his people. He has chosen these people from all the nations of the earth. And this is what Peter is referring to in helping these harassed and and, and persecuted people understand their secure identity and their missional purpose as his chosen people. And we stand in that history and in that legacy. Our story is not distinctly different from these people. It is a story of redemption. It is a story of covenant and it is what frames every, the story of all of us as God's people. We have to see how our story, ours, as individuals, our story as a, as a congregation, our story as a, as a modern day church, fits within the bigger story of what God has been doing for centuries. We're a part of that. This is who we are. So I want to draw three lessons out of this passage that helps us to understand our calling as God's missional people in this time and in this place. First of all, we see here very clearly that God's missional people know their true identity. They know who they are. We've already asked this question, who am I? Who are we as as God's people. And Peter reminds us here, verse 9, that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We are God's people. To be honest, I find one of the greatest challenges for many people in life goes back to this very basic question of identity. I appreciate the insight of Alistair McIntyre, who observed that the story of my life is always embedded in the story of the community from which I derive my identity. I am born with a past. The possession of a historical identity and and my present social identity coincide. Every one of us has a family history, and that is a part of who I am. Every one of us has a national history, an ethnic history, that is a part of who I am. I cannot be separated from the past, and Peter wants these people to understand how their present situation fits in with 
God's understanding and his statement of who they are as a people. And so Peter looks back on this historical event to remind them that their true identity is more than just your present circumstances. It's more than your personal success. It's more than your failures. You know, it's an interesting thing. I find that a lot of people are more defined by their failure than by their success. I remember years ago meeting a woman for the first time and said, tell me about yourself. It's an interesting thing. When you ask a person, tell me about yourself, you learn what is the thing that is right there, the his, the, how they see themselves. First thing she said to me was, I'm divorced. And I said, oh, I'm so sorry about that. Tell me about it. Well, I found out that that had happened 25 years earlier. And that's still how she identified herself by this very painful event. And she lived with that. This is who I am. And her identity was so formed around this one experience in her life. And she never got past it. And every time I thought of her, I thought, well, this is Evelyn, the divorced woman. Though she had great success, a vice president in a university, but the first thing she could tell you is a failure that had happened 25 years earlier. Your identity is shaped and formed not by those experiences, but by the one who created us and redeemed us, who saved us, and who calls us his treasured possession. I love the way Paul often says, my identity is in Christ. Christ is in me, and I am in Christ, and that is my true identity. And I tell myself that every single day. Who am I? I am in Christ. Christ is in me. Paul uses those two phrases more than 200 times in his writings. I am in Christ, Christ is in me, and that's my true identity. In spite of everything else that the world would tell me. But here's where we begin to see our true identity in the light of God's greater purpose and where our identity, our story, connects with God's mission. He says you're blessed not just for your own enjoyment, but that we might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Reminds me of the Abrahamic covenant where God says to Abraham, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to all the world. Not just for yourselves, not just to hoard it to yourselves, but for the purpose of sharing that blessing with other people. We are blessed for the purpose of carrying God's blessings to the nations. Yes, we are redeemed, but that identity carries a responsibility. The second thing I observe here is that God's missional people demonstrate true transformation. God's missional people demonstrate true transformation 
Peter brings out something in this passage which I think is foundational to missional living. Look at these phrases he uses. He calls us a holy nation. He says later, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Verse 11. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It all describes this one word, holy. You know, interestingly, as I reflected on this message, I was trying to remember the last time I heard anyone talk about holiness. It seems like such an archaic word, doesn't it? And, it's, and that's too bad. It's, at its core, this term holy has this, this idea of being set apart something that is distinctive, something that is different from the other items around it. It is something that has a particular purpose. God is described as holy. He is completely unique and different from any other God that is worshipped in this world. And, And we are called to be holy as well. And again, Peter takes us back into the Old Testament. Leviticus, you shall be holy for... I, the Lord your God, am holy. The term that describes me, God says, is the term that I want to describe you as well. And so when we think about being missional people, going on mission, doing the work that is entailed in in discipleship and evangelism, all those great missional activities and programs, I think we overlook one very basic and foundational truth. If we are going to be people who preach about the transforming power of the gospel, to what extent are we demonstrating that transforming power in the world that is watching us? I think that is one of the most powerful witnesses in the world is a life that looks more and more like Jesus all the time. That is is a witness without words. Simply being the transformed people of God. I have grieved over the years as a pastor, as a church leader, as a missionary. I have grieved as I have witnessed the disconnect between the message of a minister and the life of the minister the message of a person in a church, and the the life that they live out. It is sad that there are stories being told in our day that are bringing such shame on the church. And ultimately, it invalidates the message that we preach. And that grieves me. You see, God's missional people and his missional purpose in the Old Testament was not so much sending people out to evangelize and to preach. It was a mission of transformation. A mission of being the unique people of God who would be so different from the world around them that it would get their attention and draw them in. We see that in, in passages like Second Chronicles chapter 6, where Solomon is praying this prayer of dedication of the temple. And he says, and God, when people 
who are living in other nations nearby come to this house to worship, for indeed they will, because they will hear of your great name and they will be drawn to this place, you hear their prayers as well. Or Deuteronomy chapter 4, where, where, God is, where Moses is explaining the law of God, and he says, the nations of the world are going to see these laws and to see how differently you live, and they will be drawn in and they will say, what kind of a God do they worship because we have never seen such wisdom and grace and love demonstrated through these kinds of laws. These people are different, and it will draw people in. There is a powerful witness in our community and in our world when God's people look more and more like God himself and less and less like the world around us. Or as verse 12 says, people will see your good deeds and they will glorify God. Like Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that men will see your good deeds and they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's the kind of people they, they want us, that, that God is calling us to be. When we lived in China, we had a friend who coincidentally lives in Sydney and is living in Sydney in, uh, again. For a while, this friend lived in Taiwan where they could they could practice their faith openly and they were attending an international church. International church means that there were people from probably 30 or 40 different countries meeting together to worship. And this friend invited a local Taiwanese friend to join them at their church. They had shared the gospel with them a couple of times and, and uh, so they said, why don't you come to our church and worship with us? They no sooner walked in the door And this friend looked around the room and said, You worship the one true God. My friend Peter said, Well, why would you say that? The service hasn't even started yet. And this friend said, You know, when when I read in the news of nations fighting against each other and, and world leaders who can't get along with each other, She said, I walk into this room and I see people obviously from all around the world. And look at them. They love each other. They care for each other. People from every tribe and tongue and nation. It was such a powerful witness. She said, I want to believe in this God because only the one true God could bring together the peoples of this world so that they love and serve and care for one another. It was obvious that God's presence was among them. Our first priority as God's missional people is paying attention to the condition of our own souls, to cooperate with God in his work of transformation. We think of holiness in so many different ways, but you know how Leviticus describes holiness? Describes holiness in this way. Respect in the family. Exclusive commitment to God. Economic generosity. 
truth-telling and honesty, social compassion for the disabled. And I think about the homeless and the people who face such injustice in our days. It talks about justice. It talks about sexual purity. It talks about caring for the immigrants. How do we care for immigrants these days? Honesty in business. In other words, holiness is the everyday business of every person. God's people ought to be known as people of integrity and character and honesty and respect. That's how Leviticus describes holiness. Pretty practical stuff. Let me ask you, to what extent are you open to and aware of that work of transformation that God is doing in your own life? To what extent are you resisting him? To what extent are you cooperating with him in that work that he is doing in making you look more and more like Jesus? That's what he wants to do. And you kept, and you think, I thought mission was going out. No, mission starts right here. Informing us more and more into the likeness of Jesus. Because we reflect the God that we represent. The third thing I would observe here is, not just in this passage, but in all passages throughout Scripture, that God's missional people recognize that mission is God's work and not ours. We join God in his mission to the world We see it all through this passage. We see the work of God, verse 5, that he is building us up into a spiritual house. He is laying in Zion a, a cornerstone, precious. Verses 9 and 10, that God is choosing us and he is forming us and calling us, that God himself has given us a, a new identity. We have to see that mission is the story of God. From Genesis to Revelation, mission is not so much about us. It is about what God is doing in us, among us, and even through us. He created us for relationship. He formed us with the the ability to know him and to relate to him and to love him. It is the story of God going after and seeking and saving men and women who have willfully rejected him. It is the story of all of creation groaning under the weight of sin and longing to be released and redeemed from the curse. It is the story of each one of us aching for relief from physical and emotional and relational and spiritual brokenness. It is the story of God redeeming All of this, not just the souls of men and women, but look at Colossians 1, verses 19 and 20. He is redeeming all things through the blood of Jesus' cross. And our mission flows from God's mission. I like the way Chris Wright says it. It isn't that God has a mission for his church. He has a church for his mission. The question I often ask myself many times a day even is this. What is God doing here and now? 
What is God doing in this moment? He always makes the first move. He is always at work ahead of us. Some of us remember the old saying summed up in those four letters, WWJD. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in this situation? You know, that's the wrong question because it assumes that Jesus isn't doing anything. It assumes that Jesus isn't present. It assumes that God has walked away and left the world. What we ought to say is, what is Jesus doing? How is he present in this moment, in this situation, in this conversation with this person? You see, he always makes the first move. He is always at work ahead of us, and he invites us to join him in that work. I had such a reminder of this. Uh, just a few years ago, I was, I was getting ready to board a plane and to fly back home. I was in Dallas, Texas at the time and, and had been in there for a few, a few days of meetings. And it was one of those, I was tired. I just wanted to get on the plane and go home and just, um, just, you know, just kind of wanted to be by myself. I'm a bit of an introvert anyway, but I was experiencing a very introverted moment. And so I was in the terminal waiting to get on the plane and, and I spotted a woman across the waiting area and my first thought was, oh, I hope she's not on my plane. And I say that in a moment of, of honesty and, and, yeah, that's where I was at that time. I just, I just hope she's not on my flight. So I got on the plane. I took my seat. Yeah, guess who's sitting right next to me? And I tried to just bury myself in my work, but this poor woman was persistent. She kept just kind of looking over to see what I was doing, and she would, she would ask questions. And finally, she said to me, what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I teach theology at a seminary. And she said, well, that sounds very interesting. Well, then all of a sudden, the conversation went a completely different direction. And she began to talk about her many marriages and divorces, all her problems, her pain, the broken relationships, the problems in the world. And I listened to her for about two hours. It was a long flight, longer than two hours. And I listened to her. And after I listened for a while, I was able to talk with her about the fact that the only solution to her problems, all these questions that she was asking, the brokenness of this world was to turn back to God, to find peace through Jesus. It was interesting, she said to me, isn't it a coincidence that in the past few days I have been thinking about these things, these very questions, and today I sit next to a man who can give me the answers. And I said to her, I still remember her name and I still pray for her. I said, you know, it's no coincidence because God is pursuing you. This meeting in this plane is by his design. 
and he wants you to turn to him. That is simply being attentive in the moment. What is God doing in this place at this time with this person? I've had those kinds of conversations standing in a grocery store, talking with the checker. I've had those kinds of life-transforming conversations. Why? Simply being attentive and asking the question or making the comment that suddenly turns a person's life another direction. Simply paying attention. Why? Because God has gone before me. He is present in that moment. And I'm simply listening. This is the question. This is the response. You see, mission always takes place where there are broken, fallen, and lost people. And that is everywhere. A new postal code does not make me a missionary. An attentiveness to God's spirit, listening to his voice, responding to his promptings, and acting in the power of God's spirit will necessarily engage us in God's mission. As we understand who we are as God defines us, and what our purpose is as he declares that. And that's lived out right here in this neighborhood or in Papua New Guinea or in China. And the question is, do I understand who I am as God defines me and my purpose as he declares it? And am I being transformed by the Spirit of God to be made more and more into the image of Jesus. That's what it means to live as God's missional people today in this place. Let's pray. I can't know exactly what the Spirit of God is saying to you in this moment, but I believe God's Word, and I know He is speaking to you. And so my encouragement is to be open and to simply ask the Spirit, what do you have for me in this? What parts of me are open to your transforming power? And in what ways am I resisting you? What opportunities, what invitations are you putting before me to join you in the work that you are doing here, now, in this place. Help me to be open and attentive. Help us, Father, to understand who we are as you define us.
and to fulfill the purpose that you have for us. But before we can do that, transform us and make us more like Jesus. We ask for his sake. Amen.